Hi, everyone, and welcome to the EBA Team Zero webinar podcast. My name is Aaron Smith. I'm the CEO of EBA. I'm joined, as always, by Nancy Bakeman, our Executive Vice President, and we're really pleased to have Aaliyah German back. Uh, Aaliyah is with Frontier Energy and will be presenting today on high-performance zero-energy home design. So thanks for joining us. Aaliyah, welcome back. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be back. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. I'm excited to talk with you all about high-performance zero-energy homes. Real quickly, who is Frontier Energy? We're a consulting firm who specializes in energy efficiency and advanced energy solutions. We work in the residential and the commercial world, commercial food service, transportation, and grid solutions work with a lot of different types of clients from implementers to government agencies and research entities. So today we will talk about some general approaches to high performance zero energy homes and then talk specifics about envelope systems, heating, ventilation, air conditioning or HVAC, domestic hot water, and then we'll touch a little bit on other loads and renewable energy. All right, so let's dive in. So what is a high performance zero energy home? Well, at a high level, it's a building that combines energy efficiency and renewable energy generation to consume as much energy as it uses over, over a specified time period, typically a year. If you, you know, take an average home that uses say over 10,000 kilowatt hours and almost 600 therms a year, you can reduce that quite a bit through building efficiency. How much you reduce it depends on what your starting point is, the type of construction where you're located and, and the vintage of the home. But you can certainly reduce it through adding a number of different building efficiency strategies. And then on top of that, you can layer a renewable energy system that serves to offset that remaining energy use that you have for your building. The first thing to focus on is, is efficiency. And initially looking at reducing your building load. So this is uh, adopting passive strategies where appropriate, taking advantage of uh, passive solar and passive ventilation, optimizing your, your assemblies with appropriate levels of insulation and window specifications, reducing your interior gains, and then moving to your mechanical equipment. And high-performance home does not need to have complicated mechanical equipment. It can be done with simple systems that you, you and I all know of in, in, in any home. And so kind of coupling that efficiency, reducing those building loads, specifying high efficiency equipment that doesn't have to be complicated or, or unknown of, high efficiency HVAC, high efficiency water heating, um, and where appropriate appliances and lighting, of course, and, and trying to address those plug loads. This is this is hard from an implementer standpoint because a lot of this is what um, homeowners occupants bring into the home. Plug loads is everything that gets plugged in that's not this other stuff. Kind of a quick introduction to how our buildings, you know, why our buildings use energy through energy, energy flows, gains and losses. So the first one is the difference in temperature. We want to keep our interior temperature something comfortable. And outside it may either be a lot hotter or a lot colder. So we have heat gain in or heat loss out. Ventilation, when the wind blows and imposes pressure differentials on our house in between, between inside and outside, and we have holes in our building envelope, we now have air that's gonna be coming in or going out and that contributes to both gains and losses. On the gain side, we have solar that's hitting our roof, hitting our walls and coming in through our windows. 
we have internal gains, which are a much bigger uh, component than many people might might think and can contribute significantly to total cooling loads. So this is from lighting, all of our equipment, from us just being in our homes. And then lastly, on the loss side, distribution losses. So how we distribute our hot and cold air, or hot water to um, where we're trying to get it in many homes involves some level of distribution losses and it can be significant. So there's no single one way to build a high performance home. The most appropriate package is gonna depend on your climate, depend on what's available locally, expertise, products, uh, fuel, utility structures, and then of course, you know, the, the occupants who's, who's living in there, we need to design these homes to who's actually going to be using it. A life cycle analysis is a really important tool to be able to compare the different strategies that we have to build a high performance home. A simple payback analysis just doesn't really cut it, doesn't consider measure lifetime and life cycle costs. And so it's really important to look at things from a life cycle perspective, especially when we're comparing different measures that may have different lifetimes. Non-energy benefits such as comfort and indoor air quality are, are, are critically important, but really hard to quantify, but still need to be taken into account. And modeling is a really good tool to, to help us understand and compare these different measures. It's not an exact science, but it can support design decisions when, when you have somebody that knows how to use the modeling tools and understands the limitations of them and what, what kind of data really needs to be input to get valuable data out. So envelope, our building envelope or a building shell is really the exterior skin of your building. And we want to build a tight insulated envelope. And when we do that, we don't have a bunch of holes in our building to, to provide ventilation, to provide indoor air quality. So we need to have proper ventilation. Design considerations are our orientation, the design of all the different assemblies, materials, roofing materials, our, our framing materials, our type of insulation and where that insulation is located. Windows are, are, are really big, so size, and, and by that I mean our, can be a, a big component of our, our energy gains and our energy losses. And so paying a lot of attention to them during the design, the size of them, the performance, where we put them, shading, et cetera, air leakage, and then moisture management. So passive design, this is ideal to incorporate, but is not always possible, particularly if we're talking about a custom site that already has a, a lot or a site that we have to work with or communities where you've got a lot of different orientations and you need to be able to build homes in, in all of them. But it's good to understand these principles and then be able to apply them when it's when it's appropriate. So the idea is that you want to take advantage of local environmental conditions, principally solar, passive solar and passive ventilation. And so orienting the building so that you can take advantage, for example, of solar in the wintertime. So solar that's going to enter enter into your home through through windows and heat that home up without you know reducing the load that you have on your on your mechanical heating system so it's great to have south windows that let that sun in during the winter and then shade those windows appropriately so that in the in the summer when you have a higher sun angle that sun is not entering into the into the home and then couple that with a material that has a high thermal mass 
so concrete, for example. So something that when that sun hits it, it can absorb a lot of that energy and then emit it back into the building later in the day after that sun has gone down. Wall design is climate dependent, but I think in most climates, we it is appropriate and cost effective to move towards higher performance walls, something beyond a, a two by four wall. So looking at two by six framed walls, advanced framing is a term that, that refers to considering your framing plan, considering where you're putting that framing and minimizing it with, when it's unnecessary so that you can maximize the insulation that is within that cavity. And then insulating places that traditionally haven't been insulated like window headers. So a lot of different insulation types that you can put inside the cavity from bat to spray foam to blow in. And as well, different types for continuous exterior insulation. And so this is important for reducing that thermal bridging, reducing that heat transfer that can easily go through these wood studs when you don't have any insulation there. There's other wall assemblies as well, such as a double stud wall, which is uh, typically uh, two sets of two by four studs built adjacent to each other. And this increases that, that depth of your cavity, right? So you can fit more insulation in, but it takes advantage of uh, building practice that, that we all know, building a framed, framed wall, you're just gonna build two of them. And then there's other wall types as well, which are a little bit more different, such as structurally insulated panels or, or SIPs that are a manufactured product that's foam sandwiched between OSB and can have pretty high R values. Lots of options, lots of design details on walls. And same with roofs and attics. And so the design is really gonna depend on the type of construction that a home has. It may have an attic, it may not. The attic may be vented, it may not be vented. In a vented attic, you wanna focus on putting you know, a pretty high level of insulation at that ceiling level or 50 or 60. And then some things to consider are raised heel trusses. So raising that truss line up so that you can fit more insulation out to the exterior edge of that wall and improve that entire assembly performance. Radiant barriers in cooling dominated climates. And then other attic strategies are moving to that sealed attic design. And this provides many benefits. You have kind of an indirectly conditioned storage space. You don't have to spend money on attic ventilation. If you have, if you are locating ducts and equipment in your attic, now you have a much better temperature condition for that equipment and ducts to be located in. And so this is you know, moving your insulation from that ceiling level up to that roof level. And that assembly then looks a lot like cathedral ceiling with some you know, mix of either just cavity insulation or cavity insulation and, and continuous insulation. And this shows a, a, a vented assembly, but of course there's also unvented strategies as well. And there's you know, different considerations there in certain climates with, with moisture management. So cool roofs, these, these are climate dependent and great for cooling dominated climates. So a cool roof is one that has a high solar reflectance and high thermal emittance. So reflectance refers to how well the product reflects the incoming solar radiation, reflects it back out. Thermal emittance refers to once that product has, a, has absorbed energy, heat energy, how well does it emit that back out to the atmosphere? And 
a lot of times when we think of cool roofs, we think of white roofs. So white roof certainly is usually a, a cool roof, but there's a lot of different products out there that have different colors to them. The Cool Roof Rating Council is the entity which, which rates roofing products. So that's a good source to go to to identify performance specs as well as manufacturer information. And I wanted to point out that the value that's important to look at is that there's an initial value and a weathered or aged value. And that, that weathered is, is important to look at because this is based on three years of testing. And so it really indicates how well that product is going to hold up. Energy Star for Homes program has the thermal bypass checklist. In California, we have quality insulation, installation, and I'm sure there's others out there. What these, these programs are really getting at is ensuring that insulation is installed per manufacturer specifications and that you know certain other aspects, detail is paid to those in the construction of your assemblies so that you get the best performance out of, out of that installation. So that's installing a continuous air barrier, ensuring that's aligned with the insulation on all edges, sealing all your holes up in all of these assemblies after you make them for you know, electrical plumbing, et cetera. Ideally, this is verified by a, a third party and that really provides some level of validation of the insulator's workmanship. But these, you know, at minimum, these, these programs provide really good guidance to, to help train installers on how to properly build these assemblies so that we get the performance that we expect out of them. And this is really tied in with air infiltration. And so a blower door is this red contraption. It's a, a fan inside of a frame that sits inside of an exterior door. You install it, you close up all the, the rest of the openings in the home, and then you do a depressurization or it can also be a pressurization test to measure how much air leakage is moving through your, your envelope. So you create this pressure differential between the inside of the home and the outside. Then depending on how hard that fan is working, it tells us how much air is, is leaking through the envelope. This test is a requirement in IACC, but as I understand it, there's not many jurisdictions that have, have adopted it. It's a really great tool that can be used by installers and builders to provide feedback on where leaks are. You can visually look for drafts. You can feel for drafts. You can use a smoke pen tool. It makes it so that it's not as critical to verify prescriptive caulking and, and sealing if, if you test a home and verify that it has low leakage. This can be a great way to kind of identify really challenging areas. You can use it in, in say, a subdivision development where you spend some extra time in the first few buildings to test them, identify those, those areas that you need to focus on more, and then apply that throughout, throughout the community and you don't necessarily need to test every home. Windows. So windows, of course, are a really important part of our buildings. They connect us in the inside to the outside, but the reality is that they have lower R values or lower performing than an insulated wall. So the there's a couple performance ratings that we care about with windows, at least related to energy. So there's U-factor and there's solar heat gain coefficient or SHGC. And it's the National Fenestration Rating Council, NFRC, that rates, rates our windows. And these are impacted by all of the considerations that go into how a window is built, the material of the frame, the number of glass panes, the coatings on those glass panes and, and how it all comes together. The lower the U factor in you know, pretty much most cases, the, the better. That's pretty straightforward. 
SHGC or solar heat gain coefficient isn't as straightforward. In heating dominated climates, a high solar heat gain coefficient can be can be good because it lets in that, that solar and you can use that as passive solar heating that we talked about. In cooling dominated climates, uh, a lower SHGC is better because it blocks out that solar radiation. It's not quite as simple as that. In many homes that are designed for uh, passive solar, the windows are tuned by orientation. So you may have high solar heat gain coefficient glass on the south wall with overhangs appropriately sized so that that solar can get in in the winter and then the overhangs keep the solar radiation out in the summer. One consideration is that even in heating dominated climate, it's not always the best idea just to put high SHGC windows throughout a home because it can lead to overheating issues. Even in climate where you, otherwise you didn't have a cooling load, it can actually result in a, in a cooling load. One, one way where modeling can really come into benefiting the design of the, of the windows. How we impact the solar heat gain coefficient prim primarily through at least modern design is through a coating, a low E, a low e coating. So how do we get low U-factor windows? Well, one way is triple pane. So today, dual-pane, low-E windows dominate, dominate the market across the U.S. Triple-pane have been available for quite a while, but they're heavy, they're wide, they're, they're expensive. A new technology has come out recently called thin triples or skinny triples. And what this technology is, is take a typical dual-pane window and then put in a thin, non-structural layer of glass in the middle. And so then you create these two air gaps. You have a, a triple pane, but it's the same width, kind of same weight, feels the same as a, a dual pane window. It doesn't cost more to install. It doesn't require additional detailing, but it's got good performance. It can drop the U factor to about 0.20. There are products that are on the market today with this technology. So lastly on, on Windows, this is Frontier did a study in 2018 in, in California on high performance windows and identifying when and where and if they are cost effective. So we looked at kind of a high performance dual pane product and then three different triple pane products with different gas fills, argon versus krypton, and then different SHGC values. The big result was that based on, based on these costs from three years ago, these windows were not cost effective in most climates. They, they became cost effective in the, most, in the more extreme climates. Now, this is California-based. Our extreme climate is not as extreme as the extreme climate in the rest of the U.S. So, you know, kind of take this relatively if, if you're thinking about, um, you know, climate zones five and, and six, IECC climate zones five and six in the colder areas of the United States, things become more cost effective like triple pane windows. And that was the other main takeaway is that it is very climate dependent. Since then, costs have come down, thin triples have come onto the market. I'd love to redo this study and look again based on today, where are triple pane windows or high performance windows cost effective? And I expect that in the in the short term, we'll start seeing them pop up more and more, especially in our colder climates. So that's it for envelope mechanical components, you know, any anything that needs power in our homes, right? So some of the design considerations are conducting load calculations, heating and cooling load calculations, using the design information to right size our equipment, 
designing those distribution systems appropriately to minimize or eliminate those distribution losses, selecting or considering equipment efficiency, commissioning, installing what we designed, and, and fuel selection that really drives what type of equipment is going to be installed. So on the, on the design side, the most important aspects are to design the system and then install what was designed. So from the design perspective, doing those heating and cooling load calculations with something like ACA Manual J, ensuring that those load calculations are, are really based on what is going to be installed in, in that home. The actual window specifications, you know, as best as is available, actual insulation, et cetera. Designing the, the duct system and the return grills based on manual D, then selecting the equipment based on, on those, those calculations. And lastly, installing what was designed. There's a lot of different ways to distribute heating and cooling. There's heat pumps, there's condensing gas appliances. Combined hydronic is a strategy where you use one appliance to serve water heating, space heating, and sometimes space cooling. This can be delivered via forced air, talking about minimizing those distribution losses, either ducts in conditioned space or ductless systems eliminate those distribution losses for the most part, or radiant where you have hydronic tubes running through radiant floor, which is what this picture is showing, or you may have radiant, radiant baseboards. So already we're seeing a lot of homes that are being built all electric. Aaron told me before the start of this presentation that he's designing his own all electric home. That's, that's great. So this is the home of the future, but it's also the home of, of today. And so there's heat pumps for space heating and water heating. There's uh, either a heat pump or electric resistance technology for clothes drying. Induction cooking, an all electric home provides a, a number of different benefits. It's, it's really easy to offset our electricity use with on-site PV. If you do have gas that you're using on-site, there's no real easy way for how to offset that with, with a renewable energy on-site. It also results in a lot of greenhouse gas savings. And so there's many jurisdictions, many states, um, countries looking to electric homes to address climate action plans and climate challenges. All right, distribution system losses. So it can represent quite a bit of total space conditioning energy in a poorly designed system. Now, of course, you don't have to have that. And many systems are designed much better than that. We run really cold and really hot air through our, through our ducts, right? And on a hot summer day, we have a really hot attic, 125, maybe up to 140 degrees, right? And then we put R6 insulation on, on those ducts. It's just not much protection between that that cold air in the summer and that really hot attic space. So you can increase that to, to R8 duct insulation. Another strategy is to bury the ducts under the, under the attic's insulation. Then you get quite a bit more insulation covering those ducts and protecting them from, from the attic temperatures. Then lastly, focusing on sealing the entire system. So sealing all of the duct connections sealing where it connects with the air handling unit, sealing where it connects with the registers, and trying to minimize that leakage as much as possible. So heat pumps. Heat pumps are a pretty cool technology, right? They move heat from one location to another and using a, a refrigerant and the properties of that refrigerant. Usually this is from outside 
to inside. So it would be an air an air to air heat pump moves heat from either outside to inside our home or from inside our home in cooling mode inside to outside. In its simplest form, a heat pump, a split air to air heat pump looks a lot like an air conditioning system. It just has a reversing valve so that that refrigerant can flow in the other direction and provide heating during the winter. Air to water systems move heat from, from an air source outside to water that then can be piped to radiant systems, to a fan coil system that's connected to a, a duct system. It can also provide, in our combined hydronic scenario, it can provide domestic hot water as well. Ground source heat pumps have outdoor heat exchanger buried underground, so taking advantage of that temperate conditions in the ground year-round, not subjecting that heat exchanger to really hot temperatures in the summer and really cold in the winter. Mini split heat pumps are really kind of a subset of air-to-air -air heat pumps that have efficient inverter-driven compressors. So there's a number of benefits of mini split heat pumps. They're easily zoned. They can be either ducted or, or ductless. This is typical ductless indoor cassette but there's a lot of different different types of indoor units that, that you can get, even for the ductless variety. They have pretty high rated efficiencies, but some studies have found that in the field that that those efficiencies can be variable. And there's a lot of discussions and work by the manufacturers right now to figure out how we can ensure that the field performance of mini split heat pumps better matches those rated, rated efficiencies. They can be expensive in some instances, particularly if you're you have a ductless design in a large home. You really want you know, these indoor units or, or some some sort of indoor unit, whether it's a wall mounted or a ceiling concealed. You want one in every major occupiable space. And so if you have a really large home, you have a lot of those indoor units and that can really increase the, the cost of the system. In many homes, a, a, a ducted mini split heat pump can be a pretty good strategy and, and doesn't result in a much higher cost than a, a typical split heat pump, or maybe no higher cost in some situations. We're seeing these a lot now, I'm sure all of you are, especially in multifamily, multifamily housing. So in the past, heat pumps have kind of gotten a bad rap for not being able to perform very well in cold climates, but that's a thing of, of the past. They now can be installed efficiently and effectively in every climate in the United States. The Northwest Energy Efficiency Partnership, or NEEP, has a certification, a cold climate heat pump certification, where they identify and allow manufacturers to come to them and certify their products to uh, indicate that they perform well in cold climates. So there's over 25,000 heat pumps that are listed. They're all air to air. They have to provide performance reporting down to five degrees Fahrenheit. There's some performance requirements for HSPF, heating seasonal performance factor, and um, SEER or EER, seasonal energy efficiency ratio. So there's some performance requirements to, to be listed as, as part of this, this program. So this is a great resource to identify heat pumps that are best suited for cold climates. They also have guides for sizing and selecting and installing heat pumps in cold climates. And so those are, those are really useful guides as well. Condensing furnace or condensing boiler is one that has usually has an annual fuel utilization efficiency, AFUE or thermal efficiency, 90% or, or greater. And it's, it's a pretty cool technology. Instead of having 
one heat exchanger where you transfer heat from the combusted gas to your airstream, you have two and that second heat exchanger just does a much better job at extracting that energy from the exhaust stream and condenses that water. That's why it's called the condensing furnace. It condenses that water. And in that phase change, a lot more heat energy can be extracted into that airstream. Because the exhaust stream is leaving at a much lower temperature, they have less stringent uh, piping requirements, exhaust piping requirements, flue requirements. And so that usually saves some cost relative to a traditional furnace. They usually come with a variable speed fan, which some have the option of stage heating so that you can operate at a lower heating capacity when your load's lower. And then of course, those are very efficient, efficient motors. The cons are that they have limited capacity. So especially in our high performance home where we've already reduced our heating load quite a bit, probably are not gonna be able to find a furnace that is right sized for your heating load. So you will have short cycling with that piece of equipment. The other downside is that if you are offsetting, if you are building a zero energy home and you're trying to offset all your energy with renewable sources, then there's no real easy way to do this if you have gas for your heating system. So ventilation cooling is really cool technology, climate dependent. It's really a type of pre-cooling. So it's ideal for dry climates where we have diurnal swings and the nighttime temperatures drop. And the idea is that you flush the building with cool outdoor air during, during the evening hours. And this reduces or eliminates the need for air conditioning the next day. One strategy is a whole house fan. This is often installed at the ceiling level between, between the house and an attic. You open your windows and turn the fan on and it pulls cool outdoor air in and then vents it, exhausts it into the attic. There's also strategies to directly exhaust that outside. There's also fans that can be mounted on a wall or can be mounted at the roof level in a cathedral ceiling scenario. The other design is a integrated system, one that's integrated with your heating and cooling air handler. And this is an automated system that operates when the conditions are favorable to bring in outdoor air. There's an outdoor air duct that when it, when it turns on in ventilation cooling mode, it'll bring that outdoor air in, supply it through your supply registers, and then exhaust the, you know, the warmer air in your house through the regular return grill into the attic, or again, direct, ducted directly to outside. Pretty cool strategies that reduce energy use quite a bit in climates where it's appropriate. Fresh air ventilation is a little bit different than ventilation cooling, right? This is uh, focusing on good indoor air quality and managing our indoor sources of, of pollution and flushing out our house so that we have good indoor air quality. Ventilation rates are governed by ASHRAE 62.2. And while this is really important for our for all of our homes, especially our tighter homes, it is a can be a significant energy load. And so considering kind of balancing these two things is, is important in the design process. So selecting an efficient fan, there's a lot of options out there. Balanced ventilation is recommended. So instead of just having an exhaust fan or just a supply fan, having both, of course that does increase energy use, right? You have two fans but you don't end up with a depressurized house or a pressurized house. You end up with uh, no, no pressure difference in your house as a result of your mechanical ventilation system. And then you can filter that incoming air as well. And then heat and energy recovery in the form of an HRV heat recovery ventilator or ERV energy recovery ventilator 
are appropriate and cost effective in, in many climates, usually the, the colder climates. And the last thing here that I wanted to bring up was related to kitchen range hoods and new requirements that are will be coming into effect in the next year and a half in California in our energy code. There's been studies that have shown that pollutants in kitchens where natural gas, gas ranges, gas stove tops or ovens are used are, are high. And so this data supports higher ventilation and higher capture efficiency rates for gas stoves. So capture efficiency is essentially a term that has been defined in testing protocols to describe how well a fan captures all, all the air that's underneath it and removes those pollutants. Over an electric range, you have lower requirements, lower capture efficiency, lower ventilation than over a a gas range. So I wanted to introduce this because there's a lot of discussion about this right now, and I think we'll start seeing this in other places of the United States. So water heating. So we put energy in. So much of that goes to standby loss, right? We're, we're heating water in a storage tank. We use some of it, but we don't get to use all of it. And then we have all that energy that goes, that goes up the flue. This is reduced if you have that condensing technology, right? But we're still losing some there. Then distribution losses. So our, our pipes that distribute our hot water from the water heater to the fixtures, we have losses there, heat losses. And then finally, so much makes it to our kitchen sink or our shower. So compact distribution design, which is minimizing the amount of the total volume of pipes that you need in your house, and then insulating those pipes well, that reduces our distribution loss. Low flow fixtures really impacts how much hot water we need at our end use. And then selecting high efficiency equipment is going to impact both our standby loss with tanks that are better insulated and uh, combustion losses. So here's some data from yet another California study that monitored a number of different gas water heaters in California homes. And it shows the performance and how performance of a water heater varies with how much hot water you need. So on this x-axis is essentially daily water draw, how much, how much hot water is requested at this house each day. And then on the y-axis is efficiency. These, these different lines are different water heaters. So this first one here is our kind of older gas storage water heater. Up at top with this green line is our condensing tankless water heater. And it's interesting that down here in the in the lower region, the difference between these is pretty, pretty big. When you have a storage system and you're not using a lot of water, you have a ton of standby loss. And so your efficiency is just tank. Of course, with a tankless, you don't have you don't have any standby losses really. And so you have pretty consistent efficiency across the entire spectrum here. As we increase daily hot water use, the, these different system types get, get more similar, but there's, there's definitely differences here in their rated efficiency, right? Our condensing products, which are up here, have a higher efficiency, so they're operating at a higher actual annual performance than, than other systems. What we didn't measure back then was electric waters, heat, heat pump water heaters. And so this is the same as the heat pump for, for space heating, space cooling that we talked about. The Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance, or NIA, has a specification for heat pump water heaters. They have four different tiers that require different levels of efficiency and performance for each of them. So the NIA resources are, are great to identify what heat pump water heaters are available and how they perform. 
many of the products on the market today have a uniform energy factor of three or, or higher. And so compare this to the, the gas products that are between 0.6 and, and 0.9, it's much, much higher because we're moving that heat from one place to another. Yeah, would we think about UEF similarly to how we think about coefficient of performance for heat pump? Yeah, it's, it's a confusing metric because it can't have efficiency greater than 100%, right? But this is essentially saying how much energy do you, do you put in to how much energy can you get out? And when you have a technology such as heat pumps where you're moving heat between one source to another, you're able to get these, these really high efficiencies. There are split products out there and for residential size systems, the only one I know of is, is the Sandin. It uses CO2 as the refrigerant, which means that it performs really well in cold climate. So it's a great cold climate heat pump water heater. It has good efficiencies. And CO2 has a really low global warming potential. So it's a very environmentally friendly refrigerant. So installed, it you know looks, in terms of what's outside, it looks a lot like your, your heat pump or your air conditioner. It's got an outdoor unit. And in that outdoor unit, the, you know, both heat, heat transfer from heat absorption from the air and then moving that to the water occurs. And then that's just piped to a storage tank that you can install anywhere you would install any storage tank for water heating. We'll just talk briefly on, on other loads because they're, as a, as a builder and implementer, you have less control over them. But as I mentioned before, they are pretty important. LED lighting is, is here to stay until the next best thing comes. It's cost effective, it has great performance. We can install it all throughout our homes. Energy Star rates refrigerators, dishwashers, clothes washers, clothes dryers. If any of you are not familiar with induction cooking, I suggest you go look it up. There's a, a lot of courses out there that are many are focused on residential homes. So we do have several sessions on the EBA Academy on induction cooking. And I agree with you. We had a professional chef awesome. come in and teach on the product. We partnered with RMI on some of the demonstrations. So great way to learn more about induction cooking. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, check out one of those courses because there's a lot of great benefits from performance to safety for induction cooking. Home energy management can come in a lot of different forms. You can have a central system that controls everything from your thermostat to your plugs to your home security system, or you can have really simple home energy management strategies such as wiring your plug, your outlets in a living room or a bedroom such that one's always hot and one is controlled on a switch so that when you leave, you can flip that switch and you turn off all of the, the devices that you don't need when you're gone and they stop using energy, standby energy when, when you don't need them to. Smart thermostats, there's, we're all familiar with those now, right? There's so many on the market and there's a lot of really cool innovation there. And feedback to occupants is always, I think, really, really important to engage occupants and educate occupants, even if it's just providing them information on how much energy they use and how they use that energy. Renewable energy is kind of that last piece in our zero energy home. PV is what we're going to find on most, most homes. Easy to install, costs have come down significantly the past decade, uh, and it's easy to integrate with most utilities. The, the details of how, how you site the PV, 
specific products that are selected and inverter types, et cetera, may depend on what's, what's available locally and what's cost effective based on your utility rates. And then you can pair, you know, the, the, the newest thing is pairing that PV with, with battery storage. And so this lets you utilize your PV system much more, much better. And you can store that energy that you're producing when you're in from your PV when you don't need it. If you're producing excess PV and you'd otherwise would just be sending that back to the utility, you can store that energy in the battery and then use it at later times during, during peak events. And if your utility has a time of use rate, you can save, save money on your utility bill with a, a battery. So we're going to start seeing a lot more batteries both at the home and at the utility scale as we have more PV that's added across the country to our utility grids. Batteries and storage, energy storage of some sort is gonna be really critical to alleviate some of these great concerns where we have a whole bunch of solar producing electricity in the middle of the day and we have you know low really low demand at a at a grid level and then we have to ramp up really high as soon as everyone gets home in the early evening and the and the sun goes down. Aliyah, you're also seeing on battery storage people can get the 26% rebate currently. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it was just extended. Um, and so we get that percentage for, I think, tw 2021 and through 2022. And then it scales down a little bit. And then we'll see if it's extended. That's great. No, I think really inclusive uh, coverage of all the great things that go into uh, designing a net zero energy home. So I want to thank you for a uh, fantastic presentation. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Leah, one question I would have is, do you help builders and developers with analysis and design of their projects if they're looking to do a high-performance home? Yeah, yeah, we we do. Like, like I mentioned, there's no one-size-fits-all package, right? And so um, we do use a lot of modeling uh, to kind of understand what's most appropriate for specific applications and comparing costs and looking at life cycle analysis to identify optimal packages. Great, Aaliyah, thank you again. Great to have you back. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks, right. Aaliyah. Thanks.